Welcome to People's Video Audio, a series of talks by author and political analyst Michael Parenti. His books include Democracy for the Few, Land of Idols, Political Mythology in America, and Against Empire. The topic of today's talk is Human Nature and Politics, a critique of conservative concepts of human nature. It was given in Los Angeles in May 1990. Here's Michael Parenti. Well, you know, you ask the question, what is human nature? The question is profoundly political, and one repeatedly hears that the human condition can't be altered in this direction or that direction because, well, that's human nature. I heard a college student, I didn't hear, I actually am quoting from an article, I heard a college student after viewing a film on nuclear war, quote, I don't see any way to end the arms race without fundamentally altering human nature. If that's so, there's no hope for us. Often it's the sinister side of human behavior that's treated as being emblematic of human nature and endowed with a certain grim inevitability. Wars, murders, rape, rapine, selfishness, plundering greed, the lust for power and money, violence, all these have been ascribed to human nature. Uh, this tendency to blame human nature for existing social ills does have decidedly conservative implications because if human nature is dominated by inescapably aggressive and acquisitive impulses then the struggle for more cooperative peaceful communal relations seems to be foredoomed but to reject this view of human nature and say that isn't true is also ideologically motivated to reject it because it doesn't fit in with our presumptions about what we would like people to be and society to be doesn't make those postulations about human nature necessarily incorrect. They may be true. So what are we to do with this problem? It's a problem of political philosophy, but it's a problem that has very real and practical spin-offs. It's a very real and immediate problem. It's implicit in almost all political arguments and discussion. That's why I thought I'd talk about that instead of what a n crap of Bush is and all that. You know all the other stuff already. <laughs> Not to mention his son. Okay. <laughs> well, what do you do about this question of uh, human nature and politics? My advice is that you proceed with extreme caution. You're recognizing that of human nature and politics we have no certain measure. First thing we do is we can cast doubt on present-day assertions that try to justify existing social relations as being grounded in human nature. One way you do that is by historical method. Namely, you point out that all social orders have resorted to that, to that subterfuge. All of them have tried to justify the existing predominant social relations of their time as being anchored in human nature. Plato and Socrates, both of whom hated equality and democracy, who believed in the virtue of hierarchical order, both of whom hung around with aristocratic kids, a society in which everyone was in his or her place. The theme that comes up again in Plato's dialogues is Socrates saying the carpenter must be a carpenter and the shepherd must be a shepherd and the statesman is the statesman and the statesman can't be a carpenter and the carpenter can't be a statesman. The plebeians should not be voting in the assembly is another way of putting it. I mean, you know, Plato admired, Socrates admired Sparta. And in Sparta, 
Those ordinary democratic citizens who were voting in the assembly and participating in the assembly, in Sparta they were helots, they were slaves. And that was where they should be, really. That democracy, as they saw it, was unnatural. It was a corruption. And if you read the Republic closely, it's a kind of a nice uh, fascist garrison state ruled by specially trained elites. And this was so because this was more in keeping with the nature of people. Well, Plato taught that, they were, that people were born with different souls. I mean, he used it as sub, again as a deliberate subterfuge that we could tell people that there are those who are born with souls of gold, there are those who are born with souls of silver. The gold would be the philosopher kings, the silver would be the guardians, and then there's the artisans and the rest of the people, the ones who do what Veblen called the work of civilization, or really do what matters, which keeps everything going. They would be told they had, uh, I forget what it was, souls of bra brass, wasn't it? Bronze, bronze. They would be, in effect, told that they're moral inferiors. You look at Aristotle. Aristotle came later, and Aristotle, the Saint Croix, I'm, I'm surprised, considers Aristotle a, a democratic thinker. Uh, Aristotle really, if you read him closely, uh, he's really very uncomfortable with democracy. He kind of believes in kind of a middle, mixed, blended government. But Aristotle's another rich, privileged male in a patriarchal slave society. And he saw the status accorded to slaves and to women as an outgrowth of their respective natures. They had unfinished souls. Everywhere he looked, everywhere he looked, Aristotle found empirical confirmation for that belief. He looked at women, and they were consigned to domestic drudgery. They were deprived of opportunities for education, political citizenship, leadership, and participation. They were deprived of a chance to develop a whole host of skills consigned to dependency and to a very limited role in society. So Aristotle looked at all these women and said, see, like every proponent of class, ethnic, and gender privilege before and since, he reversed cause and effect. Women's capacity was constricted by the limited roles to which she was assigned. And in fact, he turned that around, that the limited roles were taken as evidence of her deficient capacity. <clears throat> Aristotle was an apologist for slavery. In Book 1, Chapter 5 of Aristotle's Politics, quote, Is there anyone intended by nature to be a slave? He poses that question. Or rather, is not all slavery a violation of nature? Now, isn't that interesting, by the way, that he poses that? Because it was a source of controversy then. And you run into that conservative defense all the time, where people say, you're being anachronistic. You're suffering, you're committing the sin of modernity or contemporaneity. You are committing presentism, some historians say. You're imposing your values on that society. It's easy for you to condemn slavery, but slavery was the natural thing of their society. You sound a little bit like Aristotle, man. But in fact, in every slave society that's ever existed, there's a large component of people who were against that slavery. A fairly large component. They were known as slaves. <laughs> and you ask any one of them if the master wasn't around, and they tell you. You read what the slaves said in the antebellum writings, the slave narratives in the American 19th century, and they will tell you how they hated it, how they detested it, how horrible it was. And even in that day, it was a source of controversy. There were people, and there were also non-slaves, who were 
arguing the case. I think Aristophanes was one. Talked about, and there were others who came out and said, let's abolish slavery. They were abolitionists. Otherwise, how would Aristotle even have had to feel compelled to raise the question, is there anyone intended by nature for slavery, or is all slavery a violation of nature? He obviously has had to confront that question because people were raising that question. Well, he goes on and he answers it. There is, quote, there is no difficulty in answering this question on grounds both of reason and fact. See, he's got reason and he's got fact. I love that quote by Benjamin Franklin that said, man is a rational animal because he will always, he's a creature of reason and that he will always find a reason for whatever suits him and whatever he wants. <laughs> so, he has no difficulty, Aristotle, in answering this question on grounds of both reason and fact. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. There's your reason, there's your fact. Book 1, chapter 13. As for women, quote, although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, a few weird ones, you know, there's always that woman who they find out he was a she and she was general of an army or something. You know, there's a few weirdos like that slip in. And there are always some men who may not want the male role, let's say. But Aristotle goes on, although there may be some exceptions to the order of nature, there may be, the male is by nature fitter to command than the female. The courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. It's not exactly an equivocal statement here, is it? And before we dismiss such notions as hopelessly outmoded, recall the traditional marriage ceremony in vogue until recently, and by the way, still used by many people, where a woman pledges to love, honor, and obey her husband. Oddly enough, today there's, by the way, a strain of radical separatist feminism, which well, doesn't speak for all feminism, but it does argue a biologically deterministic position that women are free of the aggressiveness and power tripping that is inherent in male behavior, that women are the nurturers and purveyors of the finer, gentler virtues, opponents of patriarchal violence. Joanna Brenner has a nice criticism of that position, of, especially of Andrea Dworkin and Adrian Rich, they argue male creativity lies in the appropriation of women's energy, subsequent spiritual annihilation. When Dworkin writes, quote, men love death, she's not speaking metaphorically. There's something about being a male that leads to the pursuit of death. These arguments, by the way, as Joanna Brenner points out, these arguments assume a feminine essence connected to women's childbearing capacities. And that because of that feminine essence, you get this biologically deterministic higher virtue than anything you could hope for in the male. By the way, to be sure, there is such a thing as male aggression. And male aggression against women is real and it's of epidemic proportions, Holocaust proportions in this society. And it does have a biological base in that males are usually stronger. But it also has a social dimension in that they can get away with it. And they live in a culture that encourages such violent possessiveness and abuse of women and treats it as too often as normal or as a private family matter. That model, however, doesn't, I think, operate and doesn't explain history and doesn't explain the larger questions of politics that even people like Aristotle were trying to deal with. And I don't accept the idea of a female essence that's grounded in childbirthing, which is the source of male creativity, which men use to destroy women, etc. I mean, that's 
a little too heavy for this hour of the day anyway. Okay. Sometimes the privileged and powerful elements have saw the nature of the natural order itself, not just human nature, but the whole entire natural order is called in to justify existing social relations. In many ancient societies in which property relations justified by totem myths and myths of creation, and these were used so that those with more property could justify their greater property holdings or their higher status or their privileged status. They would be the descendants from the moon gods and you people down there with very little property, you were descendants from whatever, the rodent totem or whatever kind of thing. <laughs> so often you'll find in many ancient societies that the rulers will claim a celestial pedigree. That they claim to be specially placed in regard to the divine forces. That was true of Europe. That was true of European society for about a thousand years, the period of divine monarchy, where the monarch literally claimed a direct link to God's authority, that his sovereignty came directly as an endowment from God. It took centuries of struggle, and how many battles, how many killings, how many burnings at the stake, how many people fighting heroically to finally get sovereignty turned around and the truth coming out that namely the source of his power and his wealth came from the people on whose backs he lived. But that hierarchy was taken as so natural that it reflected God's order, the natural order, the divine law and the natural law. The Chinese landlords, William Hinton points that out, the Chinese landlords used to have a saying, the sun cannot rise in the west. It was something they said to the serf. They said, you cannot change places with me. You cannot hope for the life I have or the position I have no more than you could hope for the sun rising in the west. It is, it is as unnatural as expecting the sun to rise in the west. And the sun cannot rise in the west. It follows that these elites are made of finer stuff than the serfs and peasants, and the latter are moral inferiors. Now then you got about five centuries of imperialism coming along. And imperialism was when the uh, powers of Western Europe began to expropriate the land, labor, and wealth of Eastern Europe. That was the first area of expansion and exploitation that they went into. And the second was the New World. And then having developed all the su superior firepower and mobility and transportation, they went then into Africa and Asia and further into Latin America. And with this imperialism, which is a history that really, to read the history of modern imperialism, as it's still going on today, uh, to read that history is really to read a history of a succession of the most horrendous, horrible atrocities that one can imagine. Now, when the ruling classes of these imperialist nations plundered and exploited the land, the labor, the natural resources, and the markets of other people, when they enslaved their labor, when they burned their villages, when they destroyed their industries and their crafts and their mines and their herds and their crops, when they raped them and murdered them and mutilated them, when they did all that sort of thing and they worked them to death in the latifundios and the plantations and in the mines, then theories had to come along to, to justify what you were doing. And the theories about these lesser races proliferated. These lesser races were animals. They were cruel savages. They were incapable of self-governance. They were like pathetic, helpless children. They'd been around living in peace for, you know, 5,000 years before you came along, but suddenly now they wouldn't be able to get along without us. They were devoid of the normal sensibilities that one might expect from a person in civilized societies. Again, not an anachronistic attitude. 
in my own lifetime, in your, the lifetime of most of you, the adult lifetime of most of you, General Westmoreland, you remember him, Vietnam, your average Asian, the Asian uh, doesn't place the same importance on life we Americans do, that's your average Asian. And with the massive bombings and saturation bombings, a war of horror and attrition and mass slaughter, he was pointing out that indeed one of those two protagonists did not place the same value on life as the other, but he had it mixed up, that's all. <clears throat> and with imperialism, there came in the 19th century the class-based racist patriarchal theories about human nature, known as science. Science came along and rushed in there with measurements, measurements of skulls and brain sizes. Whites were superior to blacks, males were superior to women, men of substance were superior to men of poverty. Race, gender, and class again. 19th century science gave us a great scientist, by the way, who took human beings out of the medieval metaphysical scheme of things and made them part of the natural order of things. And in a sense, it was a very revolutionary and very progressive thing that he did. A very great contribution, Charles Darwin. But a closer reading of some of the other things Darwin said in his Descent of Man, for instance, definitely shows him to be a product of 19th century science, which in turn is a product of 19th century imperialism and capitalism and upper-class white male Europeans. Darwin, quote, Man is more courageous, pugnacious, and energetic than woman, and has a more inventive genius. This is the best scientific mind of the 19th century in England, British Royal Society. Men are superior in every activity requiring deep thought, reason, or imagination. Except imagination about women, I guess. Huh? Men vastly excel in the sciences, philosophy, history, the arts, poetry, painting, and sculpture. Ready? <laughs> sisters, sisters, are you ready? Women, women excel in tenderness, unselfishness, intuition, imitation and other qualities that are characteristic of the lesser races. Darwin argued, in effect, that women are less evolved biologically, evolutionarily. For Darwin, culture doesn't explain anything. By the way, it's true of most of these people. Cultural differences are the thing that needs to be explained. And these differences are explained as being grounded in biological development in human natures in the process of natural selection. In the descent of man, or, or natural selection, or both, a combination of both biological, innate biological structures and natural selection and development of those biological developments in natural selection. Let's turn to what Darwin had to say about races. Now this is, we're talking right 1880, this is when England is building an empire upon which the sun never sets. At the time Darwin is saying this, the Brits are killing a variety of people from Ceylon to India to Malaysia to God knows where's Africa or working them to death. Darwin thought that the sense of smell was more highly developed in darker races, as in animals, than in white civilized peoples. The same, by the way, with other physiological characteristics. The rudimentary ear lobule, the larger wisdom teeth, the more pronounced conical form of the canine teeth, and certain bone structures, all supposedly common to the darker races, and all, therefore, more proximate to animal physiology, testify to their less advanced evolutionary development. By the way, none of that's true. <laughs> In case you want to go checking teeth. <laughs> okay. 
Here's Darwin talking, given, quote, the hideous ornaments and the equally hideous music admired by most savages, unquote. Darwin concluded that their aesthetic faculty was less developed than that of birds. <laughs> I mean, what impresses you is the total oblivion, the total ignorance of the brutalities of imperialism, the total ignorance of the adverse effects on the health and survival of native peoples that imperialism had when they came into exposure to European diseases, the deracination, the mistreatment, the deaths. Darwin looks at this, he discusses some particular tribe that dies out. I think it was a tribe in the American Southwest. It says they died out. He concluded that the extinction of these tribes when they came in contact with whites was evidence of their lesser biological capacity, their immunity systems, their capacities, and such. Not, nothing having to do with starvation, nothing having to do with injecting smallpox into blankets and then selling them to the Indians, nothing having to do with the Gatling gun and the Maxim gun and mass murder. They die out because they're lesser. Savages snarled more often and had less control of their fear reactions and sphincter muscles than did Europeans, Darwin said. Now, how did he suppose he found that out? And what did he do to study that one? I don't know. It's not the kind of research I'd want to do. <laughs> Thus, they were more like monkeys and dogs in that respect. That's from The Descent of Man. Civilized males were less emotive than savages and less inclined to weep. Now, even among civilized males, there were ethnic and evolutionary differences, by the way. Englishmen rarely cried or shrugged their shoulders energetically, while Frenchmen and Italians were given to such less advanced displays. Why the absence of shrugging of shoulders is seen as an evolutionary gain is not clear to me. I don't understand. You see, but you're getting this very interesting convolution. You're getting, uh, you're getting the trait of what is assumed to be the more evolved person as evidence of that evolution. So on the one hand, Right, that Englishman manifests these traits, therefore these traits must be the more evolved traits. He has these more evolved traits, therefore he is more evolved. And the thing just kind of self-fulfills itself. Darwin, by the way, is rather ignorant of the so-called lesser peoples. I mean, if you ever want to, he mentioned the Italians, if you ever wanted to see a people, southern Italian peasants, who I'm sure he would feel very uncomfortable being in the same room with. If you ever want to see a people having come from that stock, myself, all my grandparents, both sides, you want to see a people who had a rigorous idea of social strictures and interpersonal diplomacy and what was proper and what was hospitality and what you said and what you didn't say and how you presented this and didn't present that. Or if you go to any savage society, so-called savage or primitive peoples, native peoples, indigenous peoples, anywhere, whether it be American Indians or Melanesians, again, the same thing. Elaborate codes, certainly as elaborate, as advanced, as subtle, as nuanced as anything you could find in upper-class English society. Maybe not quite as stuffy, but certainly they were there. The fact that he was ignorant of them, the fact that he never saw or talked to one of these people, except to glance at them from the side of his boat, doesn't mean that it didn't exist, you see. And by the way, there was a very interesting thing that happened in the British Royal Society, where a debate broke out between Darwin and his closest collaborator, Wallace, where Wallace got up 
and suddenly started making very strange statements because they had a problem. The problem was, if the human brain is a manifestation of the level of evolution, why is the savage brain not vastly small? Why is it roughly the same or so large as the uh, white British European brain? They had these gradations. Thomas Huxley was another one who believed it. He said the most highly evolved are the Europeans. The most highly evolved of the Europeans are the upper class. The most highly evolved of them are the upper class Englishmen. The most highly evolved of them are the members of our British Royal Society. Me. Why could the world be more like me, right? <laughs> Huxley, with all the characteristic modesty of his class, decided it had that hierarchy. That was Darwin's hierarchy, too. But they had this problem. If these savages had such good brains, why weren't they more evolved? And Wallace got up and he says, you know, I don't think this is a problem, because I think they are evolved. And the thing about Wallace is he had lived in Melanesia for about two years. He says, I've lived with these people, and I find among them people who have a range of intelligence and subtlety and imagination and gift and craft and science within the confines of their material culture and all, which, is, which the best among them could compare favorably with members of our British Royal Society. And there was a gasp, of course, that was like saying, down with the Queen or something. Um, and that was the difference between Wallace and, on one hand and Huxley and Darwin on the other. Variations of these kinds of theories about human nature have prevailed into the third and fourth decade of this century. I remember them in grade school. I remember eugenics, the superiority of Anglo-Saxon institutions. They were, embraced, they were embraced by scientists and statesmen alike, from Woodrow Wilson to E.A. Ross. By the way, Ross, E.A. Ross, a very good sociologist, progressive on many issues, lost his job at Stanford. And Mrs. Stanford fired him because he came out and said nice things about strikes. By the late 1920s, early, early 30s, when it became clear that these theories had now been given a living practice in Nazi Germany, and the aberrations and the madness of them were so evident, and also given the struggle and work by communists and progressives and other people against such racist theories, Ross came out and apologized for his early writings and said it's absurd. See, but you can see how even a decent person like that can be taken in when everybody is saying it, doing it. And these racist theories, by the way, are still around today, and they're making something of a comeback in Eastern Europe and in West Germany and in Britain and in the United States, not just East Europe. With the emergence of capitalism, class power and privilege also were justified as manifestations of human nature. People are selfish. Some are go-getters, others are laggards. The system rewards and encourages the creative and the inventive and punishes the slothful and parasitic. But if it's so natural and it's so inevitable, why were the laws rewritten during the 19th century to protect and to arm the privileges of finance capital and industrial capital? I mean, if it was a natural thing that would just play itself out in the free market, why did you need the state? Why did you need to set up eminent domain laws, which were used to wipe out small property owners to the advantage of canal and railroad speculators? Or, as is done today, eminent domain still used to wipe out small property owners to make way for big developers and corporate investors who build their office buildings and shopping malls. Why were labor laws written to deprive workers of any means of self-protection? 
If it was all natural, everybody in their place, just as Plato said, the carpenter doing his carpentry, why did you need a law that made it a crime for the carpenter to talk to another carpenter and join together to try to better their lives? Why were gun thugs needed and sheriffs and Pinkerton detectives and company goons and state militia and the U.S. Army used to keep people down? These people who were naturally in their place in this natural system, this natural system that's part of the natural outgrowth, the ordinary diurnal activity of human nature every day. This civilization built on the gun and the sword and the rope and the whip, this is all perfectly natural, unforced, uncoerced. If it was so uncoerced, why is it a history of the most artificial coercive powers of the state, used repeatedly to give the wealthy every advantage and every predominance, as it's still being used to this day, right now, as we sit here and talk? If it's so natural, then why do they need death squads in El Salvador? If it's so natural to defend that imperialism and defend that natural system of capitalism, then why are people risking their lives against it in many parts of the world? Why use every subterfuge to keep the mass of people down, keep them divided, keep them disfranchised, if they're such laggards and if they're so uninterested in self-betterment? No, no. They're supposed to be interested in self-betterment. They're supposed to be interested in individual selfish betterment. I want to better myself. I want to get ahead. Get ahead of what? Get ahead of the others. It's when they do collective self-betterment. It's when they begin to see that their self-interest is an interest of a whole social formation. That's when it becomes unnatural. And that's when we've got to go in there on that. You are listening to author and political analyst Michael Parenti speaking on human nature and politics. At the end of the program, there will be information on how to obtain a copy of this talk. Karl Marx, irrelevant, wrong. Volume 1 of Capital, quote, Nature does not produce, on the one hand, owners of money or commodities, and on the other hand, people possessing nothing but their own labor power. This relation has no basis in natural history, nor does it have a social basis common to all periods of human history. It is clearly the result of a past historical development, the product of many economic revolutions, of the extinction of a whole series of older formations of social production. Well, don't think for a moment and I've been emphasizing it, let me emphasize it again, don't think for a moment that this ideological view of people and human nature is past history or anthropology. It's still very much with us. Now today, everybody is for democracy, right? George Bush is for democracy. The CIA says they're defending democracy. They use fascism to defend capitalism while claiming they're protecting democracy from, from communism. The right-wing anti-communists who have taken state power in Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, who are imposing a shock treatment capitalist restoration, that's their term, shock treatment, say they are building democracy with inflation and unemployment and all sorts of new Christian justice parties and anti-Semitic groups, the right-wing anti-Marxists in the USSR who he praised an utter uncritical adoration on Ronald Reagan and George Bush who admire everything that is American some of you must have heard that quote I gave that night. I, was, I talked to Dolly Forum from the Literary Gazette where they said, why do we need Ministry of Culture? They interviewed the Minister of Culture. 
Um, the United States doesn't have a ministry of culture, and there's nothing wrong with American culture. And they talked about Ronald Reagan's artistic career and how he brought about the peace movement that's going on in the world and bringing about the end of the nuclear arms race, and George Bush is carrying on that effort. Not a word about Gorby or anything. Well, they say they're building democracy, and they're going to do it all with the International Monetary Fund and McDonald's. <laughs> Pinochet, Pinochet says he's for democracy. He was quoted in the New York Times, says, I'm for democracy, but a controlled democracy, which indeed is what they've got now, with a military that's independent of the civilian authority, which exercises supreme control, has its own independent budget, and has final veto over what the government does. Not a democracy at all in Chile. In this age of democracy, we hear some curious defenses of undemocratic democracy. Samuel Huntington, a Harvard political scientist, gave us the strategic hamlets in Vietnam, if you remember. My fondest memory of Samuel Huntington was when he trashed a, a manuscript of mine, which a publisher was thinking of publishing, and called it bullshit, and called it uh, all sorts of terms, mad revolutionary, frothy, this and that. It was, a, it was a series of readings on trends and tragedies in American foreign policy, one of my earlier books. The publisher went ahead and published it anyway, but Samuel Huntington, let me quote him now, let me get back at him a little bit here. <laughs> I waited long enough. Notes that, he says, he notes that American institutions will always manifest some measure of hierarchy, inequality, arbitrary power, secrecy, deception, unquote, and other seemingly undemocratic things because of, quote, the imperfections of human nature. So what do you want? Ollie North, CIA, drugs and guns, uh, uh, drugs for guns, guns for drugs, death squads. Hey, guys, nobody's perfect. It's uh, imperfections of human nature. So don't push it so hard. By the way, when such characteristics as deception, arbitrary power, inequality, secrecy, when they are ascribed to non-capitalist governments that aren't U.S. client states, say a Libya or a Cuba or China or USSR or whatever, then Huntington and his ideological cohorts are quick to treat these as outcomes of the particular systems, not of human nature. And they don't excuse them as inevitable expressions of an imperfect human nature. Now, in this age of democracy, where everyone is saying they're for democracy, we also hear this litany of capitalism and class ideology. You know, I happened to find myself in a hotel in Antigua once. It was an overnight. It was the most horrible experience I had. The travel agent said, it's okay, go there, it's informal. And I said, well, it's kind of expensive for a little informal hotel. I got there, and it was inhabited by rich American, British, and Canadian people. And I had dinner, sitting at a table with these people, and it was rather fascinating, because everybody sitting was white and rich. The women were talking about where they bought their gold. So we go to South Africa to buy our gold, saying things like that. It was really great. This was back in 1978, 9, and um, the men were talking about uh, investment opportunities in this place or that place and all that. And all of them were sitting, and they were white, and they got onto one of their favorite subjects, which white, rich, exploited people talk about, which is how lazy the poorer people are. You know, and I noticed everyone who was standing was black. 
the ones who were cooking the food, bringing the food, serving the food, and they were all black. Those were lazy ones who were black. And there were some people at those tables that never worked a day in their lives who were making statements. Well, you can imagine me choking on my food. But it's really interesting, the capacity for selective perception about what human beings are, the ability to have your class ideology serve and predefine your reality. I saw a documentary film once on Nicaragua, and there was an interview, a pre-revolutionary, before the Sandinista Revolution, an interview of a group of very well-to-do Nicaraguan men and women sitting on a veranda, dressed to the nines, with their drinks and the men of their horses and their dark glasses and all that, and the women were there with all the layers of jewelry and everything else, and the coiffured hair, and they're all sitting there. I mean, on them, on their backs, on their backs, they had enough to feed a whole Nicaraguan village for the better part of a year, I would wager. And they're sitting there, and they were doing that favorite sport when the rich get together, talking about what is so wrong with the poor. Why can't they just not be the way they are? They're just something. And then finally, one of them said, one of them hadn't done any talking. This guy says, what the poor need is education. Say, hey, the liberal, here he comes. Thank God, there's one saying that. And I perk up a little, you know. The snarl begins to leave my face, and I get kind of my little hopeful Oliver Twist look on my face. And I look at him, and he says, the poor need education. I still remember his gesture. They need education in how to be human beings. And I go, The capacity for selective perception in regard to class, race, and gender realities is limitless. Reality is a secondary consideration or no consideration at all. Reality can be stood on its head. That seems to be a manifestation of human nature, or a certain kind anyway, of certain people in certain social situations. <laughs> now besides this process of historical refutation, we might also raise some direct analytic and conceptual questions about the way human nature is used as applied to politics. First of all, those who claim to rule in the name of human nature must be reminded that no one has ever seen human nature. I mean, there's no such thing in the sense human nature is a hypothetical construct like energy or power or authority, whatever else. It doesn't have an empirical thing. It, it's a construct. What we see is human behavior. And we see a whole spectrum of human behavior. We see human beings who have a capacity to be cruel and horrible and wretched and deceptive and apathetic and stupid and decent and decent and honorary and noble and fine and great. We have the whole spectrum of the very worst to the very best things. That's what we see, this spectrum of human behavior. And the question comes up is why are some of these traits treated as derivative and secondary while others are treated as basic? You look at the spectrum and you say, well, those are just all environmentally caused. And this one, 6, 11, 38, and 52, that's real human nature, you see. And by the way, people on both sides of the political spectrum do that. You know, we pick our own side and say, this is what we hope people really are. Second, the argument from human nature is an argument of drive theory. It postulates innate drives, innate tendencies. But again, I mean, aside from the obviously basic survival tendencies of food, shelter, clothing, and such, and the need for productive labor to do those things, which, by the way, Marx and Engels 
saw great significance in as to what that meant for history and the development of human society. That would be another lecture, though. We can only conjecture about innate drives. You see, the thing about an innate drive is, again, no one's ever seen it. It's unscientific. It's post-hoc ergo proctor hoc, if you will. The thing you're supposed to explain is then taken as evidence of the thing you're supposed to be explaining. You claim, for instance, to explain uh, why people pursue money and power. I have an explanation. What is it, Joe? The explanation is they have a drive for money and power. And what is your proof? People pursue money and power. So the thing you're attempting to explain is used as its own proof. Post hoc ergo propter. Write that down. <clears throat> Third, much human nature ideology is sustained only by reductionist thinking, by ignoring the very complex social processes that intervene between innate proclivity and actual behavior. For instance, to say that war is an innate human drive is to overlook the fact, one, that wars are products of complex social organizations and interests, of objective necessities sometimes or of the ambitions of leaders, whatever else. Two, it overlooks the fact that most military personnel are drafted or coerced into the ranks by press gangs or conscription. If war was such a natural tendency, then why do you have to draft us? Why do people go to Canada? Why do people refuse to go? Why do people go only out of threat that they might have to face five years in prison? Finally, if war were a natural state, part of our nature is such whatever that means, then people would feel at ease and comforted by it. But they're greatly discomforted, and they experience it as a horror, with the few exceptions who might get off on it. And those few exceptions are usually people who experience it in very optimal conditions. They're fighting, killing others with superior firepower, or they're in a big jet, or whatever else. Barrows Dunham, I think, makes that point very well. Happiness is a good test of what conditions are in harmony with human nature. And by that test, war must seem to be unnatural indeed. And if war is in all our natures, why are some people not at war? Why do most people don't want war? Why are there whole nations that change their behavior? An imperialistic nation like Sweden, which for centuries exercised warlike imperialist control over Finland, over Norway, and such, and elsewhere. But in the last century, Sweden has been one of the most peaceful, one of the most decent countries on the globe neutral, peaceful, peace-like Switzerland. Now you must have the same gene pools in Sweden and Switzerland as just about everywhere else. You must have the same males with all those same glandular juices and whatever else, and yet they're not having, yet they got not going to war. Well, it said patriarchy causes war. Again, another biologically deterministic view that has currency today. Men make war, not women. Again, I'd say that's reductionist. Some men, at the expense of everyone else, including a lot of other men, make war. Women don't make war because they've been denied access to state power and to tribal leadership. When they have had power, they made war. From Cleopatra to Catherine the Great to Elizabeth I to Golda Meir to Indira Gandhi to Margaret Thatcher, they made war. Ah, they made war because they were operating with a male mentality and in a male mental set. Exactly. So it's what's between your ears and not what's between your loins that is the determining factor of your behavior. <laughs> Human nature is so misused as an argument, and all the examples I've just given you, 
that it's led a lot of people on the left, progressive, reformist, revolutionary, whatever persuasion, to conclude that there's no such thing as human nature. Now that too, it has problems of its own. It's a kind of, it seems to me, an untenable position. It's a hyper-environmentalism. It's all nurture, no nature. But after all, what is being nurtured when you talk about nurture? Even if we were to say that human beings have a vastly greater capacity to shape their social environment than animals do, we must allow that there's something there that's being shaped. Are we really just clay that can be impressed in any manner? Okay, maybe we are. But even clay has a nature. If it's stretched too far, it breaks. It cracks when it's dry. It hardens with heat. It has other properties and imperatives that make it recognizable. All things, all entities have a nature. To say human beings don't have a nature is to say they're the only thing in the world that doesn't have a nature. Well, I've talked mostly about how not to think of human nature and politics. Now, how to think about it, well, that's going to take another whole talk. I would believe, you know, Marx believed there was a human nature. He talked about species being. He talked about the unique human quality of productive labor. He talked about how human beings create a history and how that becomes a force in itself. And we must understand that it's in the nature of people to be more problematic than our theories of society or social betterment might want them to be. That people's self-interest must be respected in some way. And yet we've got to understand and try to struggle with why people define their self-interest in this way rather than that way. That becomes a job of social investigation rather than proclamations about human nature. That self-interest can be defined in different ways and according to class interests. We've got to be aware of that. We've got to be aware that people also are capable of noble, gallant, courageous, and generous behavior, but they're also capable of vicious, mean-spirited, murderously egocentric behavior also. I think they are. And I think that all those, given certain circumstances, all those things can be treated as innate tendencies and proclivities. My view of human nature is not a very glowing one myself. I believe, along with the great American theologian, I know you've heard me say this before, some of you, the great American theologian Woody Allen, who said that maybe God exists, maybe God exists, but he's an underachiever. <laughs> I mean, it's a botched job. Imagine being omnipotent and producing this, earthquakes, plagues, tornadoes, and human beings, uh, the way, with all the capacities to do the good, but also the very evil things they do. It's a botched job. I mean, if I were omnipotent, I could have done a much better job. I'm not omnipotent, and I think I could do a better job. I, I tell you one thing, I'd take more than six days to do it. You know. I have no illusions, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I have no illusions about human beings. If you read history, you come away impressed by the treachery, the murder, the slaughter, the corruption, the deception, the horror, the injustice, the oppression of it all. Well then, it's about time you said that, Parenti, then aren't the conservatives right? People are no damn good. No, the conservatives are wrong. Because if you read history, you also encounter courage, sacrifice, honor, decency, the struggle for collective betterment. The struggle for collective betterment, Marx believed, was the motive force of history. He called that class struggle. And the thing about conservatives is that they don't see the potential for collective human development, for collective human development. 
and have always denied it out of fear that it would lead to a loss of their artificial advantages and privileges. And it's because people have the capacity to act so poorly at times. It's for that very reason that we must all the more pursue and advocate equality and democracy. It's because the evil doing is so preponderantly the product of those who have power and wealth. Not all, not all evil doing, but most of it is that we need restraints upon them and we need to eliminate them as a class power. Not as people, but eliminate them as a class power. You know, the Founding Fathers were very concerned about the abuse of power, but their concern, the delegates who met in Philadelphia in 1787 to write the Constitution, their concern was with the power of the people, the masses, and they said it was a dangerous thing, and they had a name for it. They had the same name for it that Plato and Socrates had. They called it democracy, and they called it leveling, and they said that was the danger, that was the abuse. And yet this is the source of our power and legitimacy. So how do we set up a republican form of government without the excesses of leveling and democracy coming in? And that was what they consciously looked and worked for. They talked about it. If you say they did it today, you're called a conspiracy theorist. But if you read what they said, that's what they said. And they were preoccupied by it. And James Madison in his great essay, The Federalist Paper Number 10, says exactly that. And he goes on, he says something else. That the people need to be checked. The people have to be watched. The people have to be distrusted. He didn't call them people, he called them the majority faction. Men of substance and property, however, did not need such checks. Men of substance, men of the better classes, needed no such check because they had an investment in the commonwealth. And they would therefore not jeopardize that commonwealth. Oh, yes, they would, James Madison, and they do it for the sake of their investments. And that's what the Founding Fathers didn't know. The Founding Fathers and the conservatives, the plutocrats and aristocrats, the reactionaries and the monarchists, the servants of class power and class science, the servants of concentrated wealth, they are the naive ones, a very self-serving naivete. They're really not as stupid as they pretend to be, nor as stupid as they expect us to be. We cannot, we cannot afford their theories no more than we can afford their practice. So never worry about how the nation needs stable institutions. This nation needs changing institutions and creative institutions. That's what it needs. Never worry about how our country needs a successful presidency. All through around country, we now find out they even covered up. They didn't want to bring Reagan down when they could have because it wouldn't be good for the nation. We needed a successful president. A successful in what? Eliminating the progressive income tax, in cutting women's infant children programs, in cutting human services to the people most in need, in pursuing a murderous war in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Successful? That's what the successful president. We don't need to worry about that. We need to worry about how the nation needs an honest, democratic president. And never worry about how we need strong leadership and a strong military and strong defenses. We desperately need a clean environment and decent transportation and affordable housing and a whole other list of things. 
The nation needs the will of its people, it needs the interests of its people, it needs the labor and concerns of its people. The nation needs sanity and a vigorous move away from the extremism and the insanity and the deceit and the conspiratorial hypocrisy that now rules. The nation needs democracy and we don't have it, not enough of it, and we aim to get it. That's our human nature or that's in the nature of our humanity, a yearning a yearning for decency, for peace, and social justice. Thank you. We should have a question period. <clears throat> yeah, yes, sir. Well, no, that's not the way to do it. There are possibilities, there are opportunities, funny things happening, openings come, people rally. People surprise you, you know. I thought, like about seven, eight years ago, I thought everybody was dead asleep, brain dead on the nuclear arms issue, and um, and then the whole nuclear freeze movement came along. Literally millions of Americans just woke up. So it's a funny thing, you know. Funny things can happen. What's the old saying? Apathy is a problem, but who cares? Uh, well. <laughs> You know, uh, involvement and participation starts to become contagious just as apathy and cowardice is often contagious or, you know, muting and discouraging. Apathy is often a psychological defense for powerlessness and people feel powerless and so they turn off. Of course, I do hit very selective audiences and such, but I find really there seems to be more demand than supply and that people are really hungry for some kind of understanding about how things are going. And if you can lay things out and put it together in a clear, reasonably concise way, they do respond very much so. In, in the face of such lies, C. Wright Mills once said, in the face of such misinformation, some simple facts and simple honest analysis becomes a radical act. You know, and it really, it can be a liberating act. I remember myself going through that thing. Oh my gosh, the day I realized that Vietnam was not a mistake. So, oh my gosh, it isn't a mistake. These people really want this war, and they have very real rational reasons for it. Wow. Well, once you know that, then you can't go back to saying, isn't they foolish, aren't they this, aren't they silly, and all that. So, yeah, it's not easy, man. It gets discouraging. Well, what you could do is you can, you can write up a discouragement list. <laughs> and then you can write up an encouragement list, because there are also other things that are happening that are encouraging. There are people who are fighting back. There are people who refuse to tolerate racism and anti-Semitism, and they speak out vigorously and forcefully. You know, in 1925, in the town I live in now, little town, you might have heard of Washington, D.C., uh, 1925, the Ku Klux Klan came into town, and the Washington Post ran a photo of 25,000 Klansmen marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, each one of them with an American flag in their clan guard, the masks were off and all, and they're marching like this, and the, what do you call it, the blurb under the picture was itself kind of neutral or reinforcing, said, the clan out in force marching in proud formation or something, and it's kind of almost positively framed. They reproduced the picture and the blurb under it, and, and they said this is 1925. Well, in 1981 or two, the clan came into town again, and there were 11 of them, and not 25,000, 11. And there were 5,000 
counter demonstrators who kicked their ass real good, you know, I mean, really cause, and the police had to get them back on a bus and send them out. By the way, that's when the media stopped giving so much media attention to the Klan. When they began to see how it was being more effective in activating anti-Klan sentiment than Klan, although now it's coming back again with the skinheads and all those guys. We have to look at that, we have to look at the other kinds of gains we made, we have to look at the fact that a basically profoundly dishonest government, a class government, a patriarchal racist government, is forced at times to make certain concessions to democratic forces. It has to, a part of it has to investigate another part of it, you know, to tell you that they're legitimate and they're honest and all that. In trying to maintain those appearances of honesty, they get caught up in the process of honesty and some things do get out, you know. <laughs> These become points of vulnerability whereby we can keep pressing forward and pushing and fighting. That was author and political analyst Michael Parenti speaking in Los Angeles in May 1990. The topic was human nature and politics. You can obtain a copy of this talk and others by Michael Parenti for $4 each from People's Video Audio in Seattle. For a free list of tapes, call People's Video Audio at area code 206-789-5371. That's area code 206-789-5371. Or write People's Video Audio at Post Office Box 99514, Seattle, Washington, 98199. This is Sally Soriano for People's Video Audio. Thanks for listening.